Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing with our read-through of Mockingjay, looking at chapter 24. Chris, can you give us a recap of what happens? It starts as Katniss reflects on Gail's words, the implication that she makes unfeeling decisions, and the ways in which her feelings have been weaponized against her. The next day, Tigress's spying and Capital and Rebel broadcasts show a deeper Rebel push into the Capital, how the Capital city center is overwhelmed with evacuees, the new requirements for housing them, and how a crowd beat a PETA lookalike to death. Away from the others, Katniss and Gil discuss next steps, agreeing to leave the next morning but unsure what to do with PETA. PETA does not agree to stay in Tigress's cellar, but instead decides to go out on his own, ready to serve as a distraction for the others. Gail gives PETA his nightlock capsule. In the morning, Tigress disguises them as refugees. They say goodbye, and then leave Tigress's shop in small groups. Katniss and Gail move with the crowd until shooting breaks out, with rebels on the roofs killing peacekeepers and civilians alike. Katniss and Gail take weapons from peacekeepers nearby, but enter a scene of chaos as the line between enemy and ally disappears. They move forward, dodging pods and killing any who enter their path. Pod opens up the street under them, separating them, and Katniss sees Gale get captured by peacekeepers. She moves on, soon realizing that she failed to shoot him before he could be taken, and feeling overwhelmed by the thought of his torture. She sees Snow's death as the only way of preventing that, so she moves on, arriving outside Snow's mansion, where she sees a human shield of children forced in front of the building to protect Snow. As the rebels close in, a hovercraft with the capital seal drops silver parachutes onto the children, but instead of containing gifts, they explode. A group of rebel medics close in to help the injured, and Katniss recognizes Prim in the group, making eye contact with her just before the remaining parachutes explode. It is a, quite an intense chapter. So why don't we move into our striking moments? What are you thinking? Well, for one... I think it's very interesting how when Katniss is watching the evacuating people and the evacuating children in particular going by, she makes a comparison between the Capitol children and the District 12 children who died in the firebombing of 12. I find it really interesting how, how that is the distinction she makes. It's not and the children who left District 12 for District 13, it's those who died in the firebombing. Because, yeah, she's highlighting how these evacuating children in the capital still have such a greater amount of privilege than those in District 12 had. Because they are part of an area that is valued by the rebel troops so much so that they're not going to bomb it or use their nuclear capabilities or anything like that because they want to take the capital. They don't want to destroy the capital while the capital could very easily destroy 12 and just to make that statement. Mm -hmm. And so we see, yeah, this kind of different calculus in the value of their homes and their lives based off of where they live. And, you know, as I was thinking about this for a second, I was like, is this because it's not snow at the head? So it's also that their lives aren't being judged by someone as inhumane as snow. But I don't think that that's really what it is necessarily. I don't necessarily think that Coin or other people in the rebellion would be entirely against the idea of firebombing the capital. You know, as we see with the conversation about the nut earlier in the book, I really do think that it's it's this idea of who is valued more. 
end. While children, generally, I think in this book, it's an important theme about how children are used and are oppressed in wars in ways that are particularly awful, there's still a difference between the privilege that some children have compared to others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the capital has some of the best technological resources, mm-hmm. and just bombing it would destroy all of that with them. So tactically, it's not the smartest choice. Also, anytime you're going to entirely wipe out a community, there are going to be people against that. Of course. <laughs> and if you want to seem like the good side, then it's probably not the right call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's much more important in a democracy to be seen as not having committed war crimes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I was also struck by the use of the term remake in Tigris's disguising of the unit, mm. where they say that Tigris remakes them all over the next hour, which I think is a really good callback to the remake center from the beginning of the first book, and how Tigris does have her background in that same kind of connection to the Hunger Games in trying to strip the humanity out of these children who are participating in the games to make them into something that is more easily able to be sold as entertainment and objectified. And now they're using those same skills in, I think, uh, obviously a much better way, but just the use of that one word, I think, was just a kind of powerful way of, yeah, uh, hearkening back to the first time that Katniss was made over. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how rarely that whole process has been used to help save people's Mm -hmm. lives that they're remaking, as well as... It's the opposite. It's how do we disguise people? How do we make them disappear rather than stand out in this entertainment, flashy, opulent endeavor? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my last was just how in the last couple paragraphs of the chapter, Collins doesn't ever use Prim's name in the description of her and how Katniss recognizes her. Mm. She just uses pronouns like she and her, mm-hmm. where Katniss says that she sees her braid and then she sees her ducktail and then she makes eye contact with her. And uh, Prim is not ever named in that that paragraph description um and i remember in my first read through having to reread that paragraph because i didn't get until the very end that it was prim that they were talking about probably because i was reading too fast because i was just like wanted to you know i knew i was close to the end of these books and i was just like needing to devour it but yeah i just i thought that was an interesting choice and i kind of was puzzling over what that does narratively like what that does for a reader to make that narrative choice because it has to be intentional so yeah, I uh, I think that maybe it in some way puts you in Katniss's perspective even more because she doesn't have even the time to identify Prim. She's just focused on seeing her reacting to that and then what comes next. And then, of course, the fact that Prim is so central to her. They even reference how... 
Katniss volunteered for her at the beginning of the first book. And yeah, just uh, showing the centrality of that relationship to Katniss's character and to her motivation so far and to this entire narrative. Yeah, so I don't know if you had other thoughts, but I just was kind of curious as to that narrative decision. Yeah, I didn't notice that, so that's really interesting. But just thinking about it right now, I think it's a great use of Katniss as narrator because it's not like if we see someone who we know, if their back is to us, the automatic thing is like, that's this person. You know, it's like you notice a couple of details and then you come to the conclusion. So it's like, Mm. first you notice the hair. Oh, this is familiar. And then she sees the ducktail and it's like, yes, this is my sister, you know? And so, yeah, I, I think it makes sense. Also, I'm not sure, honestly, how often we use a person's name in our minds Mm. for someone who we know super well we've spent so much time with and things like that i'm 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 honestly not sure because i've never tried to take notice Mm. (laughs) if i think people's names a lot when i see them versus if i'm thinking about them and they're not there Mm -hmm. yeah interesting Mm -hmm. what about you what are your striking moments one is that Peta is again offering up his life mm-hmm. and showing how willing he is to sacrifice it, how disconnected he is from a desire to keep it, I guess. Mm. Because, yeah, he's like, yeah, if I could cause a diversion, like, I'll go out even if I don't know if there's anything, you know, like, I don't know what I would do, but maybe I could cause a diversion after literally seeing what some people in the Capitol did to someone that they thought looked like PETA, even though they didn't look like PETA at all, you know, and so the danger is so significant, yet he still would rather spend his life helping Katniss and the others, yeah, he would just, he would rather that. Yeah. I was also noticing after our conversation about Tigress, when they leave a can of salmon Mm -hmm. for her, it said something about her face contorting into some sort of expression. So it's almost like she doesn't know how to interact with that sort of like kindness mm. and and someone doing something for her again when we saw her as a young very young person in songbirds and snakes she was just doing everything for everyone else yeah and had been since she was a young kid mm-hmm. that was just a really special moment and then katniss gives her a kiss on the cheek when she's saying goodbye and Peter says never underestimate the power of a brilliant stylist and you know it's knowing exactly the right thing to say exactly and maybe she blushes through her tiger stripes mm-hmm. you know it's just i don't know it was just a really sweet moment to think about this 87 year old woman who has surely not done everything right has not always spoke out in ways that maybe she should have, Mm -hmm. but who's also probably been quite lonely Mm -hmm. and has had a lot of pain in her life from the beginning of her parents dying to 
taking care of people to maybe being sexually exploited to being a part of this terrible system that she's not entirely okay with but is also involved with to some degree and then whatever this fallout is that she has with snow yeah her her cousin who functioned more like a younger sibling through so much of her life and yeah then being alone Mm -hmm. for however many years yeah it was just it was nice to think of her having some more genuine connection with people and yeah putting herself at risk to some degree right Mm -hmm. if if she is discovered that would be very bad for her Mm -hmm. (laughs) as well as all of them and so yeah it's it's just a nice little end to their time with her i think yeah definitely that was a read that i got for the first time this time you know as my first post ballad of songbirds and snakes read through Mm -hmm. because i think in the past she's more been kind of an off-putting character and their interactions with her have kind of been the same for me but here i was able to see more of that sweetness that humanity and even the fact that yeah katniss kisses her goodbye katniss kissing a person in the capital who in many ways physically represents the excesses of the capital i think is itself a powerful moment and it follows really well when you realize what a powerful character she is mhm mhm yeah Another small one I have is just when Gail is taken by peacekeepers. Mm-hmm. There's just a, a small line that says, the cracks begin opening inside me, threatening to break me into pieces. Mm-hmm. And I just love the phrasing of that, that it's the cracks begin opening because it's it's meaning that the cracks are already there. Yeah. She's been holding the pieces together for so long, and now it's it's threatening to to be so much that she can't anymore. Which, yeah, it's just great writing. Absolutely. You know, it harkens back to what on this podcast is months and months ago, but, you know, earlier <laughs> in this book when she was in the bomb shelter during the bombing of District 13 and... Mm-hmm. She explicitly talked about those same cracks. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, really great piece of writing. And then the last one I was thinking about is just how capital citizens are experiencing in certain ways what it's like to be in a Hunger Games yep. with all of these pods. And before I was talking about District 13 and Cressida and Pollux, but these are people who have not in any way, shape or form volunteered for this. Mm-hmm. They aren't fighting for a cause. They're not sacrificing themselves. They are being sacrificed. And I guess my hope would be that at least some of those who survive this disturbing sacrifice of them for the capital's security, mm-hmm. that they would reflect on these games that they've supported, whether tacitly or bet on or you know Mm -hmm. and what it means that they've supported that all these years and and hopefully not only have just 
anger and sorrow over what's happened, but repentance, remorse, trying to make amends and change for the better after that horrific experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially for the adults, knowing that this is what they did to children Mm -hmm. every single year and put so many more than the ones that were just in the games and had to experience some of these horrors, but all of the kids who weren't in the games but had fear of being in the games for generations. Yeah, and the adults who have their own children and are experiencing the fears of the parents Mm -hmm. uh, in the districts and and all these other kinds of things. Yeah, it, it... hopefully would make them more reflective on that. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we go to our from another point of view section? This is where we think about the chapter or events happening in the chapter through the perspective of someone other than Katniss. So who do you have to talk about? I want to talk about Gail. Let's do it. Yeah, this was actually one of the chapters where I didn't have a character kind of stand out to me as I was reading which usually is what happens, and, and, you know, I write my notes as I'm going. This chapter, I didn't really have that, and so I kind of went back through and was like, okay, who do I want to focus on? And kind of Gail came up, and as someone who is obviously a huge PETA stan, I was at first like, eh, and then I, I started kind of challenging myself to, to really think it through because of that initial reaction. So I particularly started thinking about Gail's relationship to PETA in this chapter, and what he might be thinking after their discussion the night before, where Katniss talks about how they're they're not really talking like friends, but they are certainly friendly, and they're sharing in something that would typically make them rivals or enemies, but that's not what their relationship is here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I wonder for him the next day, having had that conversation and then having to discuss what they should do logistically for their mission when PETA is still unstable. It being a fraught thought process for Gale. In particular, with him giving PETA his own nightlock and wanting to ensure that PETA doesn't suffer more at the hands of the Capitol. I saw that as a, yeah, a, a really big moment for Gale. And it made me start thinking about the extent to which Gail may have a similar outlook as Katniss in regards to feeling like he owes PETA. Uh, In their conversation the night before, he mentioned that he should have volunteered to take PETA's place and he should have been protecting her. And yeah, I could just see him thinking that he has seen PETA keep Katniss safe in all these danger situations. And he has also seen how Pete has been punished for his actions in doing so, and how he's been tortured and hijacked, and all of these things have been done to him. And it makes me think about how Peta has thought about, for example, how she'll never be able to pay Finnick back for bringing Peta back to life. For Gale, he likely has a similar perspective on Peta, that even as he is frustrated when he sees them kiss or what have you, he still feels indebted to PETA for all that he's done. And the more that PETA suffered, the more that debt has grown for him. What do you mean by that? Like, I can imagine Gale seeing PETA's torture, his hijacking, as being so inextricably connected to 
the things he did for Katniss, for someone who's so important to him, and seeing not only that he did that to begin with, but that he is then being punished for those actions, mm-hmm. making him feel like he owes Peta even more, or that that's even more evidence or, or support for why he needs to do anything he can to help Peta. You know, this even goes back to how earlier he went on the mission to save Peta. He volunteered for that mission. And I think it's more than just Gail feeling kind of like this honor-bound type of ideal that we often think about in stories like this. I do think that this probably is tied to that scene perspective that Katniss certainly has of not wanting to feel indebted to people and taking it seriously when you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that in Catching Fire, when Gail was helping Katniss, Peta, and Hamish train mm-hmm. prior to the reaping for the quarter quell, he had told Katniss, it would be easier if he was less likable. Yeah. You know, so it's like he already, he didn't hate him. Because mm-hmm. it's hard to hate Peta. <laughs> Even for Gail. Yeah. And Gail hates a lot of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you have him being upset because of how PETA was calling for a ceasefire and things like that. And I wonder if since seeing the effects of the hijacking and the torture and everything that PETA went through... I wonder if some of that he's not even upset about anymore. Mm. Like, understanding how terrible this must have been and that this person is trying to find a way back to who they were before this and they can't, but maybe they can regain some of the things. So, yeah, it's nice to think about Gail having compassion in a way that isn't only tied to justice. I mean, I I think that's one of the best things about Gale, Mm -hmm. right? When Katniss wants to run away in Catching Fire, as soon as he heard that there were some uprisings that had happened, he was like, no, I'm going to stay because we could run away, but all of these other people can't. Mm -hmm. And so it's like that compassion that is tied to justice. So he doesn't even need to know the people from District 7, but he's like, no, if there's a chance that we could do this, we should do this. So it's, yeah, it's nice to know that he can have some compassion in in a personal way as Mm -hmm. well. Because, yeah, we do often see so much of his fire, but not his sensitivity, I think. It is kind of interesting, though. I wonder what's even happened in the past few days, considering that as soon as PETA was brought on the scene of Squad 451... Mm. He asked Katniss, do you want me to kill him? Mm -hmm. And so he was still willing to do that if that's what she wanted. But what's changed now to the point where he's giving him his own Nightlock capsule, which is a big deal considering. Well, then he's taken in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. He is taken by Peacekeeper. A decision that has direct consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was also thinking about You know, you mentioned it can be easy for Gail to hate people. (laughs) And I was thinking about how he felt as they are killing people as they make their way through the capital. 
in later chapters, Katniss talks about how she's haunted by the faces of those that she's killed. And I'm curious whether that's something that's similar for Gale mm -hmm. or if his hatred for the Capitol makes it something that he's not as guilty about. He's not someone who f has that same kind of nuance to his understanding of it. Not mm -hmm. to say that I think that he wouldn't be guilty, particularly of killing other rebels or of, of civilians or other kinds of things, but I think that, yeah, I just am curious as to, to how that would have been affecting him at the time and at, at later times, too. Definitely, because it's one thing to be fine with not leaving any opening out of the nut. Mm -hmm. And all of these people to die inside. Well, you don't see the faces of those people. Yeah. I mean, it's still not good. <laughs> it's, it's still bad, but... It's more impersonal. Yeah, it's removed. But when you're seeing the faces of people killed right in front of you, when you're seeing the face of somebody that you just shot, it yeah, it's it's a different experience i would imagine i'm sure yeah and well what are your perspectives i was thinking a bit about what katniss thinks as the capital refugees which i think is a very interesting word mm -hmm. since we generally think of refugees as being people who've crossed borders right but i was thinking about them because from my own life experiences the people that I would be closest to would be these capital mm -hmm. citizens if a situation like this were to happen. Not to say that, oh, some people, it's easier to be a refugee. <laughs> no, of course not. But I just, I guess part of it is how some things are described seem nonsensical. Mm. Is it just the capital people being silly, illogical, and everything like usual? Because it's like, oh, they have like a potted plant they brought with them mm -hmm. and things like that. And first of all, you never know. Maybe they have jewelry hidden in their potted plant or cans of food or, you know, we don't really know. Maybe it's a potted plant that one of their loved ones' ashes is is a part of that or you know like mm -hmm. there could be a lot of explanations but just their general disorientation i think is really important to think about because i've never had to experience this and so i have no idea what it would be like to be walking the streets with whatever few belongings or or if I had time to grab anything. Yeah. Like one person's just in a robe, right? Mm -hmm. And walking in some general direction without knowing exactly what to do, without having a firm plan, with being scared and anxious and maybe thinking about where some of your other loved ones are and can you get to them? Is that not a good idea? Will you be let into the mansion? Should you go a different direction? You know, imagining walking to another city. Like, we don't generally walk whole cities worth yeah. here in Los Angeles County. I mean, some people do, but we're very much a car culture place. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, just thinking about how... 
disorienting and scary this experience is for all of them. Yeah, I, I like to think that I would make smarter choices than some of these potential things, but at the same time, I've never even made contingency plans in my mind about what I would do in circumstances yeah. like that because it's just... I mean, obviously, if I knew the rebels were in the capital, I would have made the plans. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's still... For most of these capital citizens, it's never been a possibility for them. Mm -hmm. And so they've never had to really think about these things. Absolutely, yeah. And then the other person I was really thinking about is Hamish, actually, hmm. because he's not here. And I was imagining him being so annoyed that they announced they were using these cars to <laughs> trigger the pause so that they could go through because Gail so quickly is like, they're not going to be able to get away with this for much longer because now they know what's going on. And even if they hadn't made the announcement, maybe it would have happened anyway. Mm -hmm. But I could just imagine him being so annoyed. Like, what are you doing? Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe some of the people in, in command are making the argument that it's worth the risk because they're going to figure it out soon enough anyway. And at least it'll show that we've had some good ideas and we like know mm. how to do some things. And you don't just hear the casualty numbers, but you actually are aware of some of the things that they're trying to do to mitigate that, you know. Mm -hmm. But I was also thinking about him... Just over the past couple of days, when he's had information that all of them died yeah. when they detonated bombs for the building that they had been in. And then when he hears that, no, actually, JK, they didn't. We're still looking for them. But knowing that they're being pursued actively. Yeah that they're in this sort of games and that he can't do anything. Like, he can't even be a mentor. He can't even decide on what gifts to send. Like, mm -hmm. there's literally nothing that he can do but sit and wait. And it just brought to mind when Katniss heard about the mission to rescue PETA, her automatic thought was, I might lose both of them tonight. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if... Hamish would have some sort of similar thought because like it or not Katniss and Peta have gotten under his skin. Yeah. They have been integrated into his unhappy life in a way that no one else has been able to because he's been the sole victor for so long and they're the only people he's mentored more than once. They're the only people he's mentored that have lived, you know, and there's just so much. And then to have the anxiety and the fear of losing both of them when he's built up so many walls for so long. And not that he dropped them all for them, but, mm -hmm. but they broke through a bit. And so... Yeah, I was just thinking about how powerless he must feel, how much he must want to drink so badly. And yeah, there's not really not much he can do. And maybe he would have found some companionship, 
some support with Johanna because both of them are very cynical and angry and sullen and don't hope for things, yet both of them would care about these people. Yeah, that's what I was going to think too, is is I can imagine him spending a lot of time with her as they're watching things and analyzing. And I can imagine Hamish kind of going back and forth between Johanna and Beattie for kind of different elements of it, where mm. with Beattie, he can be a bit more strategic and think about, think through more solution-minded conversations. Whereas with Johanna, yeah, they can just talk about how bad the decisions that the rebels are making are or, or you know, how, yeah, how much, wor- how worried they are about people and how unfair everything is for these victors. And both of them have had an addiction. Yeah. And so there's something there too that maybe BD or someone else wouldn't be able to understand exactly. And, you know, who knows? Maybe he's been kicked out of command. Maybe mm-hmm. he isn't in the room anymore because I imagine that he probably put up a big fight when they were going to send PETA yeah. to Squad 451. And maybe he's just not allowed to have any say mm. anymore because... He's burned those bridges. Exactly. Uh, the few times that we know that he has been yelling at people have really been surrounding Katniss and Peta. You mm-hmm. know, Katniss shouldn't have breast augmentation done to her against her wishes. And there was a time with Peta too, wasn't there? Well, we know that he can be quite mean to Katniss on Peter's behalf. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, so it, it was just interesting to think about and then how sad it must be. I, I think probably more so for Johanna than for Hamish, but I'm sure Hamish as well. At the point when the Capitol broadcast stopped mentioning Finnick uh, with Katniss and, and the rest of the unit, because clearly... He died, mm-hmm. and sadly, you know, you know, we don't really know Annie well enough to know how she would react to information like that. I don't know if she would hold out the hope mm-hmm. that maybe they just, maybe he escaped and they don't know that he did, but the others that they are aware of. But I think Hamish and Johanna would assume the worst. Yeah. They would assume that no, he is dead, and especially for Johanna, who seemed to have a more closer to, to what could be a genuine friendship. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe a friendship to the best of her ability at that point. Yeah. Yeah, that must be so difficult as she is, she wanted to go and she wasn't allowed to. And so the sadness and, and regret and anger at what the capital did to her so that she had this PTSD reaction and and wasn't fit to to go. And also at, I'm sure, <laughs> District 13 regardless, because she's like, they should have let me go anyway. And maybe someone like Finnick wouldn't have died if, if she had been there. Mm-hmm. Not, not to say that that's true, but I'm sure she would feel it. Yeah, absolutely. But why don't we move on to our next section, which is touch points. This is where we look at things that are happening in this chapter and make connections to our own worlds. What do you have? Well, I think that we need to touch on refugees 
in a chapter like this. Yes. Both to highlight the importance of refugees just as a, an important international issue, but also to show some distinctions between that and the experiences of the capital citizens in this chapter. Mm-hmm. So in 2022, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees announced that the world has surpassed over 100 million refugees and internally displaced people. 32.5 million of those are refugees, people who have crossed borders, but many more are these internally displaced people, people who are perhaps still within their national borders, but still have had to leave their homes for whatever reasons. Typically because they're fleeing violence and destruction of civil wars. And also some because of climate. Of course, yes. Wasn't it almost two-thirds of Pakistan was flooded and a third of people there were displaced? Something like that Mm. uh, in this past summer. That doesn't mean that they're permanently displaced, but were for a time, and I'm sure many of them still are displaced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of those displaced, they, the vast majority come from just five countries. Mm. 69% come from Myanmar, South Sudan, Afghanistan, Venezuela, and Syria. Uh, with mm-hmm. Syria having 27% alone. And the countries that host them are over 75% in low or middle income countries. Mm-hmm. And... This, I think, it sh- highlights the ways that these kinds of issues become cycles of oppression for people because the most privileged nations in the world take on a minuscule amount of the resources and labor necessary to care for these people. And refugees in particular are or should be protected by international treaties and other kinds of international agreements that have been agreed to by countries like the United States, and yet the number of refugees that we let in are very little, um, as is true with many other more developed countries, in particular in Western Europe. Uh, And when I was reading about how the wealthiest capital citizens in the city center were closing their doors, pretending they're not home, trying to just ignore the situation. It absolutely reminded me of the same kind of conversations that we have where, you know, I remember for a decade, the Syrian civil war, unfortunately, actually not the full decade the civil war has been going on, but for a number of years, the Syrian civil war was a major part of political discussions in the United States and what should be done with that, how uh, Obama and later Trump should be responding to that situation. And so even with the understanding that this is a significant issue with, you know, so many people being displaced uh, and, and killed, there never was, I think, a major push for the United States to also take in the refugees Mm -hmm. Um, and the conversations that people have when they, you know, maybe are fundraising for human rights organizations or what have you to to aid them. Similarly, are so close minded to the idea that uh, we should help out in that way. Um, You can be vetted for three years, two years before we'll begin the process to let you in. Mm -hmm. Well, by then, a lot of people might be dead. Yeah, absolutely. And in the meantime, they are 
staying in these ill-equipped, massively overcrowded camps in places like Turkey and Lebanon that are also further affecting the economies and capabilities of those countries Mm -hmm. and leading to increased tensions with neighboring countries and with uh, people who try to cross borders without authorization and, and all these other kinds of things that become the major issue rather than just trying to actually address the fact that these people's lives have been torn apart and mm-hmm. that there are ways for you to help them that don't even come up. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, not to mention the disruption in education or, like, I was talking about a couple weeks ago, the disruption of care and services that people with disabilities mm-hmm. may need and don't have access to. You know, like, it's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. More vulnerability to violence, to less access to ideas of uh, sexual health and reproductive rights and... Uh, political participation and all these other kinds of things that are going to exacerbate the vulnerabilities and oppression that people already face because, yeah, they might have disabilities or are a woman or have all these other ways that they've already clearly been oppressed um, and are just made so much worse in these really dire conditions. So with over 1.2% of the world's population now as displaced, um, this, you know, it's never been more significant to think about this as a global issue and uh, a significant one. Absolutely. So next time you're thinking about what do I want to do for my birthday? (laughs) What do I want for Christmas or whatever holidays that I receive gifts for? You could think about asking for donations to UNHCR, which is the refugee organization. Just a thought. Just a thought. A good thought. Yeah. Yeah. Just a thought. I cannot physically open my home to somebody who isn't allowed in the country. Like, I I don't have any capability to smuggle people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, yeah, one of the few things that we can do, obviously, there are organizations that help refugees who have been able to get into the country or whatever country you're listening from. And so you could definitely get involved with some of that. There's something called Miri's List. So it's kind of like Craigslist, but it's for refugee families and things that they need in the United States. So you could always look that up. I can I can leave a, a link. But yeah, it's it's atrocious. And I think I've quoted before and I will quote again. Jason Mendoza from The Good Place when he says, what kind of horrible place wouldn't accept refugees? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And in this case, it is these people in the choice apartments who are literally bolting their door and pretending they're not home. Yeah. Though, as I was thinking about this, I do want to make the distinction between the evacuees in the capital and the refugees in our own society because Mm -hmm. this does seem like a temporary displacement. They are fleeing an oncoming army, which of course displaces them from where they were, but it is not a displacement that means that it is going to be permanently or semi-permanently unsafe for them to return to their homes. 
Um, Mm -hmm. And that is what most displaced people are experiencing, that there is no easy way for them to return home. And interviews and and statistics show that most of them would love to return to their homes, Mm -hmm. Uh, that that is their ultimate goal, but it's just something they're incapable of doing. And so, yeah, I think that that while it's, I think, a, a really good humanizing narrative device for both the reader and for Katniss to see them in this experience, it also is something that still pales in comparison to the experiences of people in our own society. Yeah, I would agree, but like, I think it's I think it's both doing that and to show the extent of the selfishness here that it's not even a long term thing. Like, it's I mean, just, absolutely, yes. it's like the bare minimum. And it's people even from your own community, you know, Mm -hmm. not that you shouldn't accept people from a different community, but there's xenophobia that, you know, there's, there's a lot of other problematic aspects that go into that unwillingness. But like here, it's like, these are, they're not asking you to accept people from the districts and like, Mm -hmm. you should accept them, but you won't. But like, (laughs) there's literally people who live a few blocks from them. But I think the area where the, direness does come in is that all of the capital people who were on the streets now have experienced the trauma of it either being killed mm. by the rebels and or peacekeepers or these pods either they've experienced that death themselves or they've seen that happen to other people right in front of them if they had been let in yesterday the day before Mm -hmm. any of these things they wouldn't have been slaughtered like that that i think does correspond absolutely yeah and i think that that also just highlights the the traumas of war generally Mm -hmm. um and how people whether they're displaced or not but who have to experience those awful conditions and yeah the the death and destruction of war and of violence are understandably traumatized and understandably it is just another awful element of society that Collins does not shy away from. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's honestly my other touch point is the fact that Katniss here as our protagonist kills people mm-hmm. and she kills people regardless of who they are, regardless, not only of if they are a peacekeeper or a rebel, but whether they are military or civilian. And I think that here we see capital here we see Katniss losing herself to war, losing herself to the dangers of the moment and making decisions that are selfish and violent and not compassionate. Um and I think it's a really brave choice for a narrative to have its protagonist, to have its heroine even, make those choices in the climax of your narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, because it does, for one, highlight the terrors of war and how war makes easy choices impossible. It, it makes survival often require or seem to require new ethical or moral perspectives or paradigms 
for those who choose to engage in it, for those who choose not to abstain from violence. It also doesn't back away, especially when you look at the whole book, from seeing those things as monstrous. Um, And it's a monstrousness that is not core to Katniss, but is something that is created through violence and war. And it makes this chapter, I think, a difficult chapter to read. It made the end of the book really hard for me my first time reading through it. Mm. But I think it also makes this chapter and this book and the narrative as a whole powerful in really unique ways. And yeah, I, I guess I I admire Collins's dedication to her the themes and the messages that she has had at the core of these books. Um that war and manipulation and oppression and objectification of people is wrong. And mm-hmm. also that it is not difficult for people en masse to make those wrong decisions mm-hmm. if they are in contexts that can encourage them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was thinking similarly that this chapter really demonstrates that there is no quote-unquote good side mm-hmm. in war. That sure, there can be one side that is worse ideologically, mm-hmm. certainly, but as soon as you get to killing other humans, yeah, the violence, the destruction, the murder, the brutalness no one is absolved from, no matter on which side people are on. Yeah. Which is, you know, why we shouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's so bad. And even though they are fighting for the overhaul of this violent system, it's not that violence hasn't been being done and now suddenly it's being done. No, violence has been being done for you know, whoever knows how long. The Hunger Games have only been in existence for 75 years, but obviously the inequalities were there prior to that. The inequalities are here now, so we know that it's been hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. But still, we have to find other ways that aren't this sort of, yeah, irreverent slaughter of Mm -hmm. people to reach our aims you know and and some studies that they've done even through the un and things like that have shown that peaceful methods of resolving things can you know it costs so much less Mm -hmm. like if even we're just looking at money it costs so much less yeah and is more effective and um both on the front end and and the back end Mm -hmm. so yeah, it's 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 a hard chapter to read, but it's really good writing when it comes to the realities of of what we're dealing with here. And so often 
in these stories that we read, whether it's in book form or that we watch in movies or shows, so often this aspect is kind of glossed over or ignored entirely in mm. these like kind of epic stories. But I, I really love how she doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because otherwise you are glorifying the violence in a certain way mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're not actively critiquing it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have other touch points? Yeah, the main other one that I was thinking about is kind of related to what you were talking about before in terms of the capital citizens being called refugees mm. and, and being displaced. But I was thinking about internally displaced people in the United States. Americans in 2022, so last year, more than 3 million were displaced. The majority were forced out due to natural disasters, including hurricanes, floods, fires, and tornadoes. Mm -hmm. And so, again, this is theoretically a temporary displacement, depending on what the situation is. But for a lot of people, it's not. Like, if you're... If, your community burns down because of forest fires, then you're not going to be able to go back there soon, you know? Yeah. And then as we've seen with things like Hurricane Katrina, like how long things took to be addressed, to be rebuilt and some places still are having problems. People died because the city didn't take care of mold and, you know, all of these different things. And so the ability to return or find new adequate housing and all of that is disproportionately in the favor of those who have more resources. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it, it's happening here. And with us living in California, forest fires are now almost a annual th I mean, they're an annual thing, certainly, but like in our own area mm -hmm. where we live, like they're a common occurrence compared to when I was a child growing up in the same county. Yeah, I, I only know anecdotally, but they are yeah. certainly rising in number and in size often too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's because of climate change. Like, mm -hmm. it, it just is. The droughts that have resulted from climate change and and that's true also of some of these other natural disasters that are happening. Mm -hmm. And if climate change is increasing the frequency of these events, I was kind of thinking about when does the term, quote, natural, mm. end quote, disaster stop being accurate? Because war and displacement have most often been related to resources and greed and power. Mm -hmm. And capitalism caused climate change is also related to resources, greed, and power. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. It was just a, a, an interesting thought. I'm not saying that the trauma that happens from events like these disasters is anything similar to to the trauma that happens in war zones and when people have to flee for violent dangerous reasons but mm -hmm. yeah it's just something i was kind of thinking about 
I probably should have prefaced the, this point to say that I'm talking about current displacement, not obviously historical displacement in the United States. It's mm-hmm. a whole other matter with indigenous peoples, Japanese Americans, you know, and so on and so forth. But yeah. um, I mean, obviously, we can also talk about gentrification. Mm-hmm. Again, resources, greed, power. Deportation campaigns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm that so often people are being forced to leave, to flee, to relocate because of completely unnecessary reasons. Yeah. Most uplifting section, yeah. (laughs) But why don't we move into our wonderment section? What are you wondering about? What are you continuing to think about? So I was wondering how the Capitol is spinning its defense in its broadcasts um, because so much of their defense is reliant on these pods and that means that they're not able to really rely on these kinds of heroic elements that often come with a focus on people in the military. Our defenders are these people who are laying their lives on the line to to save us, to protect us. Mm. And when it's all just on this technology, it's... I'm just curious as to how they still kind of instill those messages with patriotism. Um, If it has to do with, for example, the pods representing a kind of superiority, that they have this greater intelligence and resources or something like that, or if it's denigrating the attackers as being inhumane, um, the way propaganda posters have done often throughout history. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm curious as to what those broadcast would look like because it is such a different kind of defensive war that they're fighting um and yeah just what that coverage would would utilize for their patriotic messages Mm. yeah that's really interesting especially because probably most of the peacekeepers they wouldn't ever want to glorify because they're either district people Mm mm-hmm or their capital people who got into debt, right? right. And so none of these things are uh, would be highly looked upon from the top people in the capital. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the game makers, the engineers, you know, mm. they would be the ones that are exceptional. They're the ones like it. It's not about bravery. It's about elite right absolutely yeah they don't have to recruit people (laughs) via propaganda campaigns they just have to give them that choice or prison or death (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know absolutely (laughs) what about you what are you wondering so my wonderment is regarding cars hmm because they're sending empty cars down to activate pods. And I'm just wondering how that all works, as well as why any of the capital citizens weren't using their cars mm-hmm. to try to drive somewhere. I don't know if there literally was nowhere for them to drive, because maybe the capital is surrounded by a couple districts, and so they wouldn't be able to get anywhere or 
maybe to keep the streets clean and pristine like maybe vehicles are all kept in like certain garages Mm. you know and so they don't just have as easy access to them and the capital wouldn't allow them to have access to them are all of these cars electric vehicles that bd can just and and any of the now (laughs) we can imagine probably a bunch of district 13 rebels that they could just hack the vehicles Mm. to have them drive down and uh activate the pods so yeah i'm just i'm just very curious on those choices from the capital side and then the capabilities from the rebel side yeah that is interesting just the the mention of cars here means that there has to be so much more infrastructure in the capital to allow for cars than I've really pictured the capital having. Yeah, so, agreed. Yeah, that does raise some really interesting questions. And maybe it's only a certain echelon of people who can have cars. Yeah. And everyone else in the capital does take public transportation methods. I don't know. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, why don't we move on to our final section, which is intentions. What are you kind of taking with you or what do you want to implement into your life? Yeah, I think that this conversation has made me want to prioritize reading more nonfiction about global issues. Mm -hmm. Um, It's frankly something that I myself have often shied away from because, for one, I get limited reading time generally, and there's so much to read that when I do read, I'll prioritize either fiction or nonfiction books that are really catering to my own interests. Um, or at the very least for both of us, they're probably more historical. Based totally. Exactly. Rather than current. Absolutely. Right now I'm, I'm teaching a class on global studies where I've already started to read more about modern issues and uh, through preparation for that class. And, and I think that I want to, whether I continue to teach this class or not, make that more of a regular occurrence for me, something that that I am more aware of. I don't want to be someone who's just shutting myself off from these larger problems and pretending they aren't there or trying not to engage with them because they are too big or depressing or, uh, you know, whatever else it might be that I think that these are things that I should, yeah, just be more proactive about using my particular skill set, which is research and academia and education to utilize those more in my own life and in my teaching. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, what about you? What's your intention? Yeah, so my intention is to try to not be those people from the Capitol that shut their doors. Mm. Because, of course, I would advocate for opening doors for people who need shelter and access to resources and things like that. But practically speaking, it's not something I've ever done. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've helped friends out here or there in, in different ways, but it's something different to allow someone into your home where you don't know what the time frame is for it you don't know 
you know, what ways it exactly can inconvenience you or require different things of you. And, you know, I, I know that for me, it's just not really possible because of my own health issues mm -hmm. that even the smallest thing like having somebody who is not very quiet mm -hmm. <laughs> and if they wake me up I have really bad insomnia like that in and of itself is just would make me not be able to function mm -hmm. <laughs> more so than I already can't but another part of me is like is that just an easy excuse to make myself feel like I would do these things if I were in a different place health-wise, you mm. know? Would I really be that open and generous if there was an unhoused person that needed a place? And it's like, well, I don't really know this person. Can I trust them? You know, like, there's all of these questions that come up, which isn't, which is understandable and is human and blah, 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 but it's also, like, not the loving, compassionate, giving thing. And so, yeah, just even if I can't open my home to random people, I'm sure there are other ways that would be along those same lines that, you know, I could, I just, I want to, if I'm presented with something like that, um, to remember this, to remember not to be those capital people. Yeah. Um, because we can criticize them, we can roll our eyes at them, we can say they're terrible, but are we the same? You know, like... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay, well, I think that is going to wrap up this week's episode. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So next week we are going to be reading Chapter 25, which means we're getting very close to the end Seriously. here. Seriously. Where snow is annoying, even as a prisoner. Sounds about right. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you'll join us on Patreon so that you can get access to all the special content that we make and to help us keep the show sustainable. Yeah, we are quickly approaching our final Zoom meetup for this read-through of The Hunger Games. And so we'd love to have you join us for that last one. It'll be on Mockingjay. And also at the end of this book, we put out trivia quizzes and, and a lot of other fun things. And Ooh, we get to watch the last movie. Yep, we'll do the last movie and do our adaptation or bad adaptation. So a lot of good things coming in the next few weeks. So, yeah, we'd love to have you join us. And since we've socialized our tiers, you can pay whatever you can afford starting at $1. Yeah, thanks again to all those who have supported us thus far, and we hope that you'll join the ranks soon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.